Exodus chapter 7 and beyond is what we're going to be looking at this morning, page 63 in your Bible there in the pew. It'd be great if you had that open before you today. Let's pray. Father God, we have been asking you to come and to speak to us, and that's the prayer of our hearts. But we pray also that we will learn to listen to you. That your your speaking would be a a moment of opportunity for us. A a listening and responding moment when our lives can be changed in the ways that you desire. Lord, we want to be your people. So we pray that we would enjoy just this next few moments of of hearing you and, and responding. Amen. A few years ago, I decided that I'd like to spend a little bit of time in the Clarawood part of our parish here, the Clarawood Housing Estate. And the way I decided to go about that was to write an open letter to that community. So I wrote that letter, printed up about 800 copies of it, and thought, well, I'd like to deliver these to the homes in that, that part of our parish. Uh, I realized that I I probably couldn't do that myself, so I got some help in. Uh, Some guys from the Belfast City Mission came uh, and joined joined in with me and helped me with that. So I remember uh, that beautiful, bright autumn morning, quite quite like this morning, when we set out from here to go down to Clarawood and to, to visit those 800 or so homes. I had loads of brilliant interactions and conversations. I really enjoyed that. Um... One of them stands out in my mind. I was down, if, if you know Clarewood at all, it, it's on a, a gentle hill, but right at the bottom there are a couple of, or, or certainly one high-rise sort of tower block part of the estate. And, and I remember visiting my way through the, the tower block, just working my way up floor by floor, and, and knocking on one particular door. A, a woman answered, and I explained to her that it was from the church, um, that I was just coming around to, to meet people and to, to give them a letter that I'd like them to read. As soon as she heard that I was from the church, she took a step back and her body language changed and the shutters came down. And she said a very interesting thing to me. She said, Mister, I'm not interested in your church. I have my own religion. And when I asked her what that was, she said, I, I worship uh, the, the gods of, of the Egyptian religion. Now that's not an answer or, or a belief system that I commonly uh, am encountering here in East Belfast in, in the, the beginning of this third millennium. This, this woman was, was worshipping uh, gods somehow part of a, a, an Egyptian religion. It's a pity we had that conversation a few years ago because if we'd had it any time recently, I would have invited her to come here today because we're in a a chunk of Exodus where we're going to be thinking about Egyptian religion. But, of course, we want to to think a little bit beyond that eventually. Let me remind you very quickly of how we've got to this point in the story. God's people are, are in Egypt. They're in trouble They've been living there for about 400 years by now. And at this particular stage in their history, uh, Pharaoh, 
the king of Egypt has made them into a slave workforce uh, and he's oppressing them. There's a glimmer of hope at one moment when uh, a Hebrew boy is born and he's adopted into the royal family of Egypt. But when Moses, the, the prince of Egypt, tries on his own terms to help his people out, he mucks it up. He ends up killing a man. He has to flee, go and live in exile and work as a shepherd in a, in a desert. Moses is in the, the desert for decades. So the suffering of the people goes on and on and on. And it's only then eventually that God appears to Moses in the desert and he tells him, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses uses pretty much every excuse in the book and some that aren't in the book to get out of having to go and talk to Pharaoh. But eventually Moses goes and he does that. And again, his efforts end in disaster. David helped us to think about this last week. Chapters 5 and 6 of Exodus tell the story of how Moses goes to Pharaoh. And rather than setting the people free, Pharaoh says, no, you're lazy. You're, you shouldn't want to be worshipping. You're my slaves. And he increases their workload and heaps on fresh misery on the people. Things haven't got any better since Exodus began since we began our studies in chapter 1. In fact, things at this point are worse than they've ever been for God's people. So that's the background to this passage we read a moment ago, these early verses of chapter 7. And this passage describes how God appears to Moses and he says, Moses, go back to Pharaoh a second time. Look at verse 2. You're to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country. But I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he won't listen to you. Then I'll lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I'll bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. God tells Moses, go back, talk to Pharaoh again. But immediately God tells him he's not going to listen. Pharaoh won't listen. Not before I do some stuff, an awful lot of stuff, some pretty dramatic stuff. Not till I come down on him like a ton of bricks will Pharaoh listen and let my people go. So this short passage in the opening verses of chapter 7 it's an introduction to the whole of the next five chapters, chapters 7 through to 11. And they tell a very famous part of the biblical story. They tell us of the ten plagues. We're not going to think about these short five verses at the start of chapter 7. We're going to think of those whole five chapters this morning. So bear with me as we do this. These plagues... What are they all about? Whenever you start to read them one by one, it's quite hard to get your head around what each individual plague might mean. What does that first plague about the blood mean? And that second one about the frogs? And then the gnats and the flies, the dead livestock, the boils and the hail? 
How are those related to the last ones about the locusts and the darkness and the death? It's hard to know. And most commentators can't really see any particular connection in any particular order to these plagues. It's one of those cases where it's hard to understand them individually, but it's easier if we take a step back and look at the big picture. What's going on here? This is a battle of the gods. We know this because Pharaoh, he's regarded as the representative for the Egyptian sun god Ra. Ra was believed to be the the ruler of the earth, of the sky and of the underworld. And Pharaoh was his rep, the living representation of Ra on earth. Look back now to verse 1. Because God tells Moses there, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. God now says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to make you my rep. Whenever you stand in front of Pharaoh, then Yahweh's rep stands in front of the rep of Ra. And whenever we understand that part of the context, we see this clear as day. This is now a battle of the gods. Moses goes head to head with Pharaoh. But much more importantly, Yahweh goes head to head with Ra. So each of the plagues then, when we begin to see this as a battle of the gods, becomes around in this ultimate heavyweight contest. Who's the boss here? Who's in control? Who's going to win? Is it Ra, represented by Pharaoh, or is it Yahweh, represented by Moses? So these two guys now are in the ring. They're going at each other round after round, and the whole country's watching. Everyone is a spectator in the arena. The Egyptians are all there. The Hebrews are all there. Ten times they go at each other, and the first two rounds actually end in a draw. I'd forgotten that about the plagues. Because Moses does some stuff, but the magicians of Egypt match him. They do the same stuff. But each time after that, Moses wins. Whenever Moses wins, the whole world order in Egypt is turned on its head. This is much, much bigger than Wigan beating Chelsea in the premiership. This, this is the all-time shock of all time because everyone was 100% sure that Pharaoh was going to win. Pharaoh represents Ra, the great power in the universe. The, the Egyptians believed this. They had centuries of this belief under their belts. But make no mistake about it, the, the Israelites believed this too. They had lived for centuries by now in Egypt. Their minds too had been shaped by the Egyptian way of thinking. The only ultimate power in their world was Ra, represented by Pharaoh. So here comes Moses, this Hebrew shepherd, out of 30 or 40 years in the desert, and he gives Pharaoh the runaround. Each of these plagues then 
becomes a little bit like a, a slow motion replay of another Pharaoh knockdown. We get to see him put down on the canvas again and getting up and again and getting up and again and again and again. Pharaoh begins with two reasonable rounds. He spends the rest of the fight on the ropes and in the end he's knocked out. Pharaoh and Ra are shown to be nothing. Moses representing Yahweh wins hands down. Folks, we're inclined to think of these stories, these plague stories, as God's judgment on Israel because, uh, you know, Egypt's been oppressing Israel for a long time, and it's a natural thing that God would want to, to punish them for what they have done to his people. But that's actually not the way this story is told. Judgment isn't a big part of the storyline. The word judgment is only used twice in Exodus 6, verse 6, and then in chapter 7, verse 4. And it has more to do with God's power and his righteousness than it does with, with Egyptian sin. In fact, the word sin is only used once in the whole narrative, and Pharaoh himself takes it on his lips about himself. So if we're saying that this humiliating defeat of, of Pharaoh and Ra isn't primarily about judgment, then what is it about? What's going on here? Well, there's a thread running through the narrative that tells us that this is all about knowledge. Let me point out a couple of the key passages. Chapter 6, verse 7. Look at it with me. God says to the Israelites, I'll take you as my own people and I'll be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. You'll know, God says. Chapter 7, verse 5. Look at it with me. God promises that it's not only the Israelites, but the Egyptians too are going to be given this knowledge. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. There are, there are stacks of these references to, to people knowing that Yahweh is the Lord. It seems that, that Yahweh wants Pharaoh to know something. He wants the Egyptians to know it and the Israelites to know it, and one day the whole world to know it. He, and not Ra, is the God of the universe. This thread in the narrative actually begins in the passage we were looking at last week. Flick back with me to the opening verse of chapter 5. Here we get an insight into why God falls so heavily on Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and will not let Israel go. We get a sense here that Pharaoh's being, being smart. He's being sarcastic and he's being sneering. I do not know the Lord. Who is this God you're talking about? Never even heard of him. Why am I going to let you go for a God I haven't even heard of? 
Well, the rest of the story seems to be saying then, well, Pharaoh, you may not know him now, but you will get to know him very well, very soon. Eugene Peterson says that Pharaoh is about to be sent to school to repair his ignorance. The ten plagues will be the curriculum. And it's not just Pharaoh in the classroom. The whole country will be there with the Israelites in the front row. After these ten plagues, nobody will ever be able to say again, I do not know the Lord. Folks, there's not a person in this sanctuary this morning who can get by without taking this lesson on board. We must get this. Every one of us. Yahweh is the boss. He is the Lord. I want to talk for a moment to people here who call themselves Christians this morning. People like me. We need to get this. You know, sometimes I look around our evangelical churches here in Ulster and I see us a lot like Israel and Egypt. We know that our God is God, but we have no sense that he's in control. We're not sure anymore that that he is the boss. The pharaohs around us The other powers seem so much more in control, so much more powerful. The Britain we live in seems to be in the the grip, an irretrievable grip of of materialism. Secular atheism uh, we see is on the rise. Mosques and New Age centres are are opening where churches and, and congregations used to be. And we interpret all of this as the weakness of Yahweh. We begin to feel sorry for God. As though he's somehow fallen in hard times. We begin to think for ways where we can help him through this bad patch. Help him out. Until things take a turn for the better. Ono captured it brilliantly in a recent U2 song. He challenges us to stop helping God across the road like a little old lady. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to open our eyes. We need to rediscover the truth that was played out in Egypt all those years ago, that God is in control. He's not losing any sleep over materialism or atheism or any other ism. They're about as frightening for him as little white bunny rabbits. He's the boss. He's totally and utterly in control. We've got to remember this and live in the light of it. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, somebody who follows Jesus Christ. If if that's the case for you, then please hear 
this crystal clear message of God's word this morning. God, the God of Israel revealed to us in the Bible, the God made known to us finally in Jesus Christ, he is in control. He's the boss. All other gods, anything else that claims your ultimate allegiance is is a dangerous illusion. We're told in, in Psalm 95, the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In Psalm 96, we're told that the Lord is to be feared above all gods, for the gods of all the nations are idols. They're they're nothing. That woman in Clarawood, embroiled in Egyptian religion, she's following a defeated God, a no God, a, a nothing. Whenever the gospel writers told us about Jesus and when they wrote about his life, They wanted to make it crystal clear to us that Jesus was the boss. They told us about the the incredible power he displayed and the control that he operated over the whole natural order. So we see Jesus healing sick people. We see him calming stormy seas. We see him raising people from the dead. And, And the ultimate display of his power comes in that moment where he himself dies but three days later rises from his own grave, God demonstrating his ultimate power. At the end of his gospel, John tells us that he wants his people who read his gospel to understand that Jesus is the boss. That's the whole point of his record. He says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, see that life that Jesus lived before you, those miracles that he performed, they serve the same purpose as the plagues in Egypt. They're a demonstration of his power. They show us in a way that we can't refute. He's the boss. As I close this morning, I, I want to ask you a question. Have you, have you recognized that Jesus is the boss? And have you gone that step further and submitted to him And made him the the ruler, the the only authority in your life. One day you will recognize Jesus as boss. Paul tells us about it in his second chapter of his letter to the Philippians. He tells us about a time when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On that day, each one of us here, everyone will bow before Jesus. Some of us will bow before him, lost in love and wonder. 
the greatest moment we've ever imagined because we'll be in the presence of the one who, who gave his life for us, whom we love. Some of us will bow before him as reluctant rebels, like Pharaoh in Egypt, forced to her knees to finally admit defeat. Those who love Jesus will see that as the moment when the life that God always planned for them is, is finally given to them. And those who don't receive Jesus will realize in that moment their nightmare come true. That life with God has passed them by. And the division in that crowd that day will fall simply on one question. Did you recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ? So folks, I ask you today, do you know the Lord? Have you submitted to Jesus Christ? If not yet, then do it. And do it soon. Let us pray. Father God, we're, we're prone to trifle with you. To imagine that life with you is, is something that we can pick and choose as suits us. That it's a, a hobby to fill our Sundays or our evenings. But Lord, we have seen today that you are the only power in this universe. That Jesus Christ, your son, is the authority before whom we'll all bow one day. Father God, give us the grace to see you in your goodness. To recognize that you exercise all of your power to save us and to give us life. Help us not to be blind and rebellious against you. Save us from a pharaoh mentality that won't bow before you because we think we're gods ourselves. Lord, humble us. Open our eyes to your love and your grace and your kindness and help us to receive all that you want to give us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.